You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. Well, I feel like we should pray again, so let's pray and then... uh... We'll dive into our text. Father, thank you so much for everyone who is here today. Uh, it is not by accident. Um, the reason that we are alive and we are here is because I truly believe that, God, you are um, working in the lives of each person. And therefore, you have something for us today. And so I pray that in this time, that uh, in the name of Jesus, that you would just bind the enemy. Um, that you would keep him from attacking us in this moment. I know that the, there is a real spiritual world and your enemy hates what is happening right now. Uh, he wants to kill, steal, and destroy. You want us to have life and have it abundantly. And so, Jesus, I pray that the power of your spirit, that you would arrest our attention and focus our hearts exactly on what it is that you have for us today. It's a cross thing that we do pray and ask these things. Amen. Amen. So earlier this week, my wife and I watched uh, a movie that critics are saying is one of the best movies from the 1990s. Um, it's the movie that is called Safe. Anybody seen a movie Safe in here before? Uh, I didn't think so. Um, it's a movie that was made in 1994, but it was set in 1987. And in the movie, there is this nice-looking uh, woman named Carol who is living in California. She's married to this nice-looking businessman. They, uh, she drives a nice BMW car. They live in this nice, super like clean, like spotless home. And in many ways, um, at the beginning of this movie, Carol was a trophy wife. I mean, um, from all outward appearance, she looks uh, fantastic. But on the inside, and kind of hovering in the background of her life, is all of this anxiety and fear. Which at the beginning of the movie is kind of at a low hum, but as the movie goes on, it gets more and more intense. And so Carol, if you're watching the movie, she tries to live a normal life, but when she turns on the radio, all she hears is about the troubles of the world. Or she goes uh, to get her hair permed, and all she can think about is the chemicals seeping into her brain. Um, she worries about car fumes. She worries about crime. She worries about germs. She worries about the fact that she's worrying. And therefore, though she lives in this pristine, perfect little bubble, there is a stalking enemy of anxiety that is behind her at all times. And therefore, the main question that she is asking throughout the movie is not, what must I do to be saved, but what must I do to be safe? And one day, she is in the gym trying to make herself look physically perfect, and while she is there, she finds this flyer that is advertising uh, the seminar, and at the top of the flyer, it says, are you afraid of the modern world? And of course, she's like, yes, I am. And so she goes to the seminar, and there's a woman giving a talk, and the woman's actually more like an evangelist. And she's telling the people that, hey, if you want to to have a satisfying and fulfilling life, you need to find a safe place. You need to go into this commune with other people and hide out from the world. And Carol is so influenced by this talk, she decides in the movie to leave the suburbs and leave her family, and she goes into this commune. And um, she's with all these people who are just like her, hiding from the world. And at first, she's really happy. She's excited to be there. All the things that she's worried about in the world are gone. And she's just hanging out without her husband, without her kid, right? She's just there all day with people who are just like her. And they share stories and they sing folk songs and all is good. But one day, um, despite the fact that she's isolated from the world, Carol has this deep sense that still she is not safe enough. And so she goes to the director of the commune, and they actually end up, after a conversation, moving her into the safest room they have in the commune. 
And basically, it's this soundproof igloo that is completely free from germs and toxins and human beings. And she is sealed off now from all of the dangers of the world. It's just her and this empty little box with an oxygen tank that she uses to breathe clean air. And as I was watching this movie, I was telling Megan, we were watching it together, I think it was on Tuesday night, and I was telling her, I said, I couldn't help but think about the, movie, uh, the book, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, which is basically about all these people who are in hell, but they don't know they're in hell. They just live in this boring little mundane town, and they just keep crawling further and further away from each other and into a life of absolute loneliness and meaninglessness. And this is what happens in this movie, and just spoiler alert for you, um, if you don't want to hear it, you can just close your ears. But at the end of the movie, um, Carol's husband comes to pay her a visit. And he's talking to her, and all of a sudden she starts coughing, and she's like, you're going to have to leave. Your cologne's making me sick. And he looks, and he's like, I'm not even wearing cologne. Um, But he leaves, just as she asked him to. And he walks out, and he shuts the door. And at the end of the movie, you have Carol, and this, this actually shot you see on the screen. She's just staring into the mirror, and she's trying to convince herself she's okay. And so she just continues to say over and over to herself, I love you, I love you. I really do love you. It's a haunting movie. And the reason that I share it all is because, according to sociologists and psychologists alike, we are currently living in the most anxious, medicated generation the world has ever known. And because the church is not immune to this epidemic, I believe the real temptation before all of us today is, like Carol, to choose a life of retreat rather than risk, to care more about our safety than about salvation, to embrace our comfort rather than the cross. And what we know from the teachings of Jesus is that this life of ease and this life of comfort that we're all tempted to run to ultimately will ruin us if we make that our life ambition. In the words of Jesus himself, those who try to save their life in the end will lose it. But if you will lose your life for my sake you will find it. In light of all that, the question I want to run after in our text today is this question. How do we, as the people of God, in the midst of an incredibly anxious society, actually begin to live as a non-anxious presence? How do we, as the church, in the midst of the chaos and the crisis, go from sitting in this isolated, defensive position in kind of our little commune, our little holy huddle, and begin to rather live on the advance as bold witnesses of Jesus? Fortunately, we get the answer to that question in Acts chapter 4. Just to kind of set the context for you, if you remember from last week, Peter and John in Acts chapter 3 were walking into the temple and they came across a man who had been lame from birth, a man who had never been able to stand on his own two feet. And Peter, empowered by the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus, heals this man. And immediately this man who had always been set on the outside of the temple, who by law could not enter into the temple because he is healed, he now runs into the temple and he begins to praise God. I mean, he creates quite the scene. And so people begin to gather around. They look at Peter and John. They're like, hey, what's going on here? How is it that this man who's been lame from birth all of a sudden is standing up? And Peter, he uses this opportunity uh, to preach the gospel. And he begins to tell them that the reason this man has been healed is because the author of life, Jesus Christ, whom you killed, is back from the dead. He is alive, and because he has sent me and all of his followers, his Holy Spirit, he is alive in us. And it is through him, through Jesus, through us, now this man is healed. 
And as a result of him preaching the gospel and talking about the fact that the Jesus whom they killed is now back from the dead, it says in Acts chapter 4, verse 2, if you look with me, it says the leaders became greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And so what do they do? They arrested them and put them in custody. I just want to stop right here and say this. Oftentimes, as followers of Jesus, your bold obedience will trigger opposition. I want to say that again. Oftentimes, as a follower of Jesus, your bold obedience will trigger opposition. Notice in the text again, when Peter and John were arrested, what were they doing? They were just doing what Jesus told them to do. They were living as bold witnesses. They were being obedient. And as a result of this, as a result, not of their disobedience, but their obedience, life began to go bad for them. For some of you this morning, you have believed a lie that as long as you will just do everything that Christ has called you to do, then your life is going to work exactly the way you want it to work. As long as you read the Bible and you pray and you show up here on Sunday morning, and especially if you throw some money in the offering plate, then you're going to be healthy, and you're going to be wealthy, and you're going to have a great marriage, and lots of friends, and everything's just going to be great. And that sounds good, but the problem with that is things like the Bible. Because what we will see is sometimes we will follow Jesus, and things will go really well for us, and then there's other times we'll follow Jesus, and things will go poorly. That's what we see right here. Peter and John are preaching the gospel. They're just being witnesses. They're testifying of the resurrection power of Christ. And so because of that, they are arrested. They're put in custody. And then in verse 7, if you skip down, the religious leaders come to them and they say, okay, um, again, they ask the question, by what power or by what name did you do this? So they're giving them another chance here. Like, don't say Jesus and we'll, we'll let you go. So here it is again. Like, hey, what power did you do this? Like, how did you heal the man? And then look at verse 8. And then Peter Filled with the Holy Spirit. That is a phrase we will see over and over and over in the book of Acts. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, says in verse 10, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man is standing before you well today. This Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which became the cornerstone of verse 12. Look at this. And I'm telling you, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. As you know, this year we are committing as a church to trying to have gospel conversations with a thousand people who are far from God. A thousand people who do not know the real resurrected Jesus. And the reason that we're encouraging you as a church to go out and share the gospel is because everyone in this city is looking to someone or something for salvation. Everybody is. Some of them are looking to work. Some are looking to, to live in vicariously through their children. Some are looking to sex, some to money, to pleasure, to applause. And what I want you to hear is according to Peter, apart from Jesus, no matter how good you are, no matter how sincere you are, no matter how moral you are, apart from Christ, you will spend an eternity in hell, which means you will miss out on the salvation and the satisfaction that you are longing for. This is what Peter is getting at right here in verse 12. And so because he keeps preaching Jesus in verse 13, it says, now when the religious leaders saw, what's the word, the what? The boldness, this is a word that's going to appear three different times in our story today. Because they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated and common men. I love that. It's like, 
We're looking at you. You're not charismatic. <laughs> you're not well-spoken. Uh, you clearly don't have any formal training. You're just a regular old blue-collar layperson, right? It says, but because they saw the boldness of them, they were astonished. And what did they recognize? They recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now, you know I have to stop here because it's amazing to me that at the crucifixion of Jesus, the disciples completely disappeared. Think about that. Because of their fear and their anxiety, when Jesus needed them the most, they vanished like ghosts. But now, upon Jesus' return from the dead, because Peter and John are now filled with the Holy Spirit, just as, by the way, you and I, if you followers of Christ, are filled with the Holy Spirit, because they are filled with the Holy Spirit, because Christ is no longer just beside them, but now in them, these often bumbling, doubting, sometimes power-hungry disciples have morphed into this solid, non-anxious witness for Jesus. I mean, they just continue to open up their mouths, despite opposition, to testify about who Jesus is and what he has done for them. And because of this, because the religious leaders hated Jesus, because they didn't want to see the gospel spread any further, if you go down to verse 18... They say the following. They called Peter and John back in. They charged them, do not speak or teach at all anymore in the name of Jesus. So they've tried arresting Peter and John. That doesn't work. They're trying again now to arrest the message of Jesus. They don't want it to go any further. But Peter and John answered them. Look at this boldness. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. It's a little fun experiment for you. I would encourage you to go home this afternoon, take a deep breath, and then just see how long you can hold the breath. What you will discover is what you breathe in, you have to eventually breathe out. Peter and John have breathed in the Holy Spirit. They have the presence of Jesus inside of them. They said, we cannot but breathe out Jesus. We have to talk about what we have seen and heard. And so in verse 21, it says, the religious leaders heard all this, they further threatened them, but then they let them go, finding no way to punish them. And then skip down to verse 23, because I want you to see what happens here. Upon being released, look where Peter and John run to. Verse 23, it says, when they were released, they went to where? They went to where? They went to their own. They went to their friends. They went to the church. They went to the people who were locking arms with them in the mission of God. And I love how we didn't plan this today that Luke uh, had Brett come and share. And I didn't know, have no clue what Brett was going to share. But I love how basically you just preached this part of the text for me where you talked about how as Christians we have to have community. We have to have brothers and sisters. We have to have people we too are locking arms with if we're going to be the men and women that Christ called us to be. For some of you this morning, please hear this. You are stuck in your discipleship to Jesus. You are struggling with the same sins over and over and over and over, and it's because you are trying to deal with the Christian life all by yourself. You need community. This is why every single week we encourage you, get involved in a missional community. Get involved in a DNA. Get plugged in. And listen, I know that community is scary. I know that it's awkward. I know that it involves sacrifice. But here's the thing. You will never, according to the Scriptures, experience the life that you are longing to experience by living in isolation. That's hell. That is not a picture of what the kingdom looks like. Peter and John understand this. And so upon being threatened when they were released, as they ran to their friends, and then look at verse 23, and they reported to the chief priests and the elders, or they reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. So they're like, you guys are not going to believe this story. This is insane. Wow, this is crazy what we're about to tell you. 
And so they tell him the story that what we just talked about. And then in verse 24, look at this. And when they had heard it, the church raised their voices together in prayer to God. Now, I don't know about you, but that's probably not going to be my knee-jerk reaction upon hearing that story. Um, I have a type A personality, and so for me, my knee-jerk reaction is probably not prayer, but a plan. It's like, we got to get a plan in place. Like, specifically, we need to get a security plan in place because I love my wife, I love my kids. we got to protect, like, we got to get to safety here. But for the early church, notice, they're not thinking about plans. Like, they don't go with plan, they go with prayer. And then I want you to listen. Look back, look back in verse 24. Listen to how they pray. Listen to this, guys, because... How we pray reveals what we believe about God. How we pray reveals what we believe about God. And so if you're here this morning and you do not pray, that reveals the fact you don't really believe you have a relationship with God. Or if you're here and your prayers are really formalized and canned and rigid, or you're trying to like use impressive language, it just shows that you really don't believe God is a gracious Father who wants you to come to Him as He really is. Or if your prayers are always about me, 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 it shows that you believe God exists for you more than you exist for God. Like how we pray reveals what we believe about God. And notice for the early church, again, in verse 24, when they prayed, how did they start their prayers? They started by addressing God as the sovereign Lord, as the one who is in control of everything. They say in verse 24, you are the sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it. Um, I was reading this past week about how NASA originally believed that the universe contained about 200 billion galaxies, which is crazy. Uh, we uh, on Earth, live in the Milky Way galaxy. And the Milky Way galaxy, I had to go back and research this, is about 100,000 light years across, which means it's so big that if you want to travel from one end to the other, you would have to go at 186,000 miles per hour for 100,000 years, and then you would get to it. And we're one little bitty galaxy in the midst of what NASA said was 200 billion galaxies that they've discovered. But you know what they recently found out? This just came out last week. According to their latest research, they now believe their original estimate of 200 billion galaxies is at least, at least 10 times too low. <laughs> I thought about that this past week in a lot of this text, and I thought to myself, how amazing is it that the God who created all that is our Father, and we can go to Him anytime we want? It's amazing to me. The early church, they understood this. So in a moment of crisis, when most of us would try to grasp for the illusion of control, which, by the way, all control is an illusion, while most of us would be trying to grasp for the illusion of control, these men and women go to God in prayer. Why? Because they believe he is the sovereign Lord. He is the one who is in control of everything and everyone, including, listen to this, including even the enemies that are now trying to come up against them. That is why when they go on in their prayer, they continue in verse 25 and 26, and they're just going to quote Psalm 2, which I love that. Even though they're common and uneducated, they've never been to seminary, they've memorized Scripture, they know it from heart. And they begin to quote Psalm 2, and the reason they quote Psalm 2 is because Psalm 2 was always quoted at the coronation of a king in Israel's history. It was a way of remembering that there have been evil kings and tyrants that have tried to come up against God from the beginning of time. But rather than God freaking out over that, God has used even the best attempts from his enemies to thwart his plan to actually accomplish God's plan. And that's what they go on to say in verse 27. If you look, it says, for truly, this is crazy to me, for truly in this city, they're still praying to God, for truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed 
both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do what? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In other words, what they're saying there is when we sat at the foot of the cross watching Jesus die, we thought the world was spinning out of control. We thought that all was lost. And if there was ever a day where it seemed like all is lost, it's when God is dying on the cross. But now they say because we have an empty tomb, because we see that Jesus conquered sin, death, and hell, we now know that even the people, think about this, even the people who were crucifying Jesus on the cross were only doing so because you had predestined it to take place. It all happened under your sovereign rule and authority. And I wouldn't get too caught up on that word predestination because the only reason it is here to remind us of the reality that God uses even the evil from our enemies to accomplish his purposes. Which means, what the early church understood, is we can now be confident knowing that no matter what happens, nobody can ultimately stop the mission of God redeeming and restoring his world. And you see, because the early church believed this, look what they pray next. Is now they're going to move to the request. Here's the request. Put yourself in the situation. You and your family are facing death threats at this point because you bear the name of Christ. What are you going to pray? Here's their request. Verse 29. Now, Lord, look upon their threats. So look at our enemies. Pay attention to that. And grant to us, grant to your servants what? To continue to speak your word with all. And what's the word? Boldness. There it is again. Verse 30. While you stretch out your hand to heal... And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, if I'm in this prayer meeting, I'm probably going to stop you at this point if you prayed that prayer. And I'm going to say, wait a minute. You hear what you just said? That's a dumb prayer, guys. Pray for boldness and for more signs and wonders to be done. Like, don't you realize that's what's got us in this mess? You not keeping your mouth shut? You doing miracles, like performing some miracles, some lame? Who even cares about that lame beggar? Like, the stuff you've done, that's the, that's the stuff that's got us in trouble. That's the stuff that might get my children taken away from me. That's what I'm probably saying. But for them, they say, man, because we truly believe that we are witnesses. This is who we are. This is why we exist. God, here's our prayer request. Give us boldness to keep teaching, to keep preaching. And then, oh, yeah, God, by the way, because miracles still happen today in the church, do your miracles through us to validate our message. That's their prayer. And then in verse 31... Look at how God responds. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they continued to speak the word of God with what? With boldness. There it is again. Before we end this morning, here's the question that I want us to wrestle with. In a lot of our texts today, though I'm in front of a crowd, I'm in front of a crowd of individuals. And here's the question I have for you as an individual. Do you want to live and speak more boldly for Christ? Or, if you can be honest, do you just want to wish you were bolder? Do you want to step into the story that is worth telling? Or do you want to retreat into a false sense of security where you let your fears remain unchecked, unabated, and unchallenged? I don't know about you, but I want a boldness like I see in the book of Acts. 
I want to, in the words of Mark Sayers, to trade cultural relevance for gospel resilience. I want to choose to walk the countercultural, narrow path in which we die to self and we rethrone Christ in our lives as a supreme authority. I think back, um, I think it was back in the 80s and 90s, many of you were alive and then you remember this, um, but because in the 80s and 90s, Christians listened to really cheesy Christian music and because we wore really cheesy Christian shirts, um, for example, I remember one of them that had the Budweiser symbol on it, but instead of saying Budweiser, or instead of saying this bud is for you, it said this blood is for you. Yeah. Remember that? Amen. Um, I remember another one that, that uh, my parents bought me. I was talking to my wife about this this morning. I can't believe they bought it for me. It's kind of humorous, but um, it was like a little spaghetti shirt, like cut off like men's shirt, but instead of it saying gold's gym, it said God's gym. And like Jesus was all muscled up and had a cross on his back, which I thought like anybody who would have saw a 110 pound dude like sporting that says God's gym would be like, I don't want your God. You know, it's like, if that's what that gets you, no, thank you. But because we wore the, you know, the, the cheesy Christian shirts and we tucked them into our jeans, it had of course the braided belt, um, and the dockers and all that, right? At some point, probably around the early 2000s, um, the church began to believe that if we are going to transform our culture, we need to make Jesus cool again. And then if we can just make Jesus cool again, America will repent of their sins and turn to Christ. And I remember this pretty well because I was just starting out, I just started a college ministry uh, in the early 2000s. And I remember like every book I was reading was like, look, if we're going to make a profound impact in the lives of others, we need to like have really cool services. So obviously we turn the lights down low, we light candles, we play secular music. Right, whenever people are walking in and when they leave, and um, uh, of course, you know, like you cue up the rock band, um, and if you're the speaker, like make sure like you dress as cool as the coolest person on the campus. And so, like this was the time whenever Tom's shoes were really big. Do you remember Tom's shoes? Right, people are like, "What are those? Are those sandals? Are they shoes?" And it's like, exactly. It's like, who knows, you know? And if you're teaching, you know, you uh, you just got to tell a lot of jokes and then you like show movie clips. And if you didn't prepare very well that week, you show a really long movie clip. So that way it's like, oh, we got five minutes left. You read a verse and then you end. And basically the idea was if you will just do that, if you'll just be cool enough, people will be attracted to Jesus and the city will be transformed. And the problem with that way of thinking was in our attempts to update Jesus and make him hip rather than impacting the culture. We just begin to imitate the culture. And what happened is we begin to attract a crowd and fill rooms, but nobody left with deep, lasting transformation. And that is why I think Acts 4 is such an important text for us today. Because what we need to see, and what we will see as we continue to read the book of Acts, is that if we are going to change the city of Paragold and this region and beyond, it is not going to happen through our coolness, but through our boldness with a boldness to step out in the power of the Holy Spirit, with an urgent gospel conviction to be obedient to Jesus, even when nobody else is, and to proclaim the good news of the gospel to a world that desperately needs it. This is what was needed for the early church, for them to spread the gospel through the Roman Empire, and this is what is going to be needed for us if we are going to make the real resurrected King Jesus non-ignorable in this city and beyond. A question in a lot of all that is, okay, Jared, if that's if that's what we're called to do, then how do we get there? How do we actually become these bold witnesses? How do we move from being kind of in this isolated, anxious, defensive position where it's kind of like, hey, let's get away from the world to actually living on the advance and taking the good news of the gospel forward? How do we do that? And I think there are just three practical things that I would tell you, and then we will end. I would say this. If we're going to live as bold witnesses of Jesus, if we're going to make a, 
impact on the culture around us. We need to be a people who pray up, step out, and then repeat. We need to pray up, we need to step out, and we need to repeat. First, we need to be a people who pray up. In the words of Anne Lamont, courage is simply fear that has said its prayers. This is why whenever the early church found themselves in a crisis, whenever they were tempted to throw in the towel, when they were tempted to go to the sidelines to choose safety over salvation, the first thing they did was pray. More than they saw their need for anything else, they saw their need to have the sovereign hand of God on their lives. And the same must be true of us, guys. If we are going to push forward in the mission that God has called us on, we must be a church that is ruthlessly committed to prayer. And I don't just mean praying all alone in our houses as great and essential as that is, but I mean like the early church, like we see in Acts 4, we need to be committed to coming together like we are right now and just praying together. That is why every single month or every other month we have a prayer meeting. We have our next one this Wednesday, kicks off at 6.15. We have child care for that. We pay for people to come and watch your kids. We are committed to making this as easy as possible for you to come and for us to pray together, to go to God and to admit that we cannot do your work apart from your power. And therefore, we're going to come and we're going to call upon you, the one who can do far more than we could ever think, dream, or imagine. And if you are you know, hearing this and you're like, Jared, I would love to do that, but man, I just suck at prayer. Like, we'll join the club, okay? Like, I'm a pastor with a master's in theology, and I struggle with prayer. Uh, There are so many times that I try to pray, and honestly, I feel so unimpressive and weak and pathetic spiritually. I mean, just last night, I I was, and I went outside, and I was sitting on a back porch, and I was going to pray for all of you, and for our time today, and within like five seconds, all I could think about was these banana nut muffins that Megan had just made. You know, and I think about all the chores we have going on, the conversation I had earlier in the week, and I wonder if my jeans have been repaired over at Quick Stitch, and all these different things are just going through my mind. And if you're anything like me, listen, I just want you to know this. Our prayer meetings are not for people who think they're impressive. They're for people who think God is impressive. Our prayer meetings are not for people who feel like they have a lot of faith, but it's for people who come and place what little faith we have in a big God. That's what our prayer meetings are for. So I want to encourage you, sign up for that. If you're in a missional community, you should get the link um, that'll come to you again today to give you an opportunity to sign up and to be here. Last uh, Wednesday, or last prayer meeting that we had was our largest crowd ever. Like, so excited about that, man, that we are a church that has grown. I really believe the health of our church is measured by how our prayer meeting turnouts really are. I believe that. So we need to be a people, if we are going to live as bold witnesses, that we need to pray up. Of course, whenever we're alone by ourselves, but also when we are in groups in a church. Secondly, I would say that if we're going to live as bold witnesses in this city, if we're going to transform this culture, we need to listen. We need to step out. Plain and simple, if you want to be bold, you have to step out in faith. You have to be willing to step out of your comfort zone. Listen to me. Even when fear is still inside of you. I think of that famous quote from Franklin D. Roosevelt. who said this, courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the assessment that something else is just more important than the fear. We have to have a conviction about us that, you know what, I may be scared, but this, Christ, is more important than what's going on here. His kingdom is more important than my kingdom. And as a result, even if I'm afraid, I'm going to make a decision to step out in faith and trusting that when I do, not before I do, but when I do, God will meet me there and give me everything that I need to live the life he's called me to live. Thirdly and finally, what I would say is not only we need to pray up, not only we need to step out, but we need to push repeat. It is interesting to me that in our text, 
in verse 31, chapter 4, verse 31, after the disciples prayed for boldness, it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit. I want you to think about that. Because just a few days earlier, at the day of Pentecost, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? What that means is they needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit again. Again. And if the apostles in the early church needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit this often, I think the same is probably true for a lot of us in the room today. See, like our cars need to be refueled in order for them to move forward, if you're going to move forward in the mission, you have to be refueled. You have to be refueled with the Holy Spirit. It's not just a one-time thing. I prayed a prayer, I asked Christ my life, now it's filled with the Holy Spirit, the end. This is something that needs to happen over and over again if we are going to move forward and live as bold witnesses for the good of the city and the glory of God. All that being said is, We come to a close this morning. We're about to move into a time of communion. And I want to focus our hearts on Hebrews chapter 13. Just going to be about two or three more minutes and we'll be done. Hebrews chapter 13. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn there. Hebrews chapter 13. We'll read this and then we'll enter into a time of communion and response. Hebrews 13. The context for this is the writer of Hebrews has been talking about how the priest in the Old Testament, how in order to atone for the sins of the people, would make sacrifices and then throw the sacrifices, the bodies, out of the gate, out of Jerusalem, out of the camp. So that's the picture, right? You come, your priest, to atone for your sins, I kill an animal, and then I throw the animal out. Basically, it's symbolic for the fact that now your sins have been taken away. You're good. That's the context. That's what the writer's been talking about. And then look at this in verse 12. He says, likewise, this is what Jesus did for you. Jesus suffered outside the gate. By the way, that's, that means Jesus suffered outside of his comforts. He went outside of where it was safe. He went outside of where it was familiar. Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify, right, to save, to forgive, to make holy his people through his own blood. Therefore, look at verse 13. Let's go. Let's go to him outside the camp and let's bear the reproach he endured for here we have no (laughs) lasting city but we seek the city that is to come maybe for some of you like carol in the movie safe you find yourself in a prison that you honestly thought was going to be paradise And in your attempts to just basically live your life as comfortable and safe as you possibly can, you're miserable. Or at the very least, you're bored out of your mind. And today, Jesus is calling you to leave the camp, to get out of the common, to step out of your comfort zone and to go where the action is. And according to verse 13, the the question you're probably asking is, why would I possibly do that? Why get out of my comfort zone? Because according to verse 13, that's where Jesus is. That's where the author of life is. That's where the treasure is. That's where everything you're longing for is. It is outside the camp, outside the comfort zone. Guys, you want to experience Christ in a profound way in 2019. I'm telling you, and I say this with love in my heart, it's not going to happen from you sitting in this chair. I don't care how good the band is. 
I don't care how good the preaching can get. You can bring the best preaching, the, the greatest band possible in here. You want to experience Christ in a more profound way. You have to get outside of these walls, outside of this commune, outside of this camp, outside of what is comfortable, and trust that that's where Jesus is. And the reason you can trust Jesus when you go to him is because he first went for you. He's the one that first left the camp. He left home. He left where it was safe so that now we can trust that when we go to him one day, we'll be safe for all eternity. That we are secure in him and that we are going to a home that actually is lasting, that's not perishing, where there will be no sickness, where there will be no suffering, where there will be no sadness, just the overflow of God's perfections forever. Question is this morning is will you go to him? For some of you, here's what this means today. For some of you, it's going to mean literally going and having a conversation for the first time and saying, I choose to follow Jesus today. People might think I'm dumb. People might think, well, that guy's been involved in church his whole life. What's going on with that guy? They might talk about it. They might. Who knows? I might have to give some stuff up. Look, when you follow Jesus, you will have to give things up. You will lose stuff for following Jesus, but you will lose far more by not following Jesus. And so for some of you today, stepping out of your comfort zone might be coming and talking to me or Adam or someone you came with about, man, I want to follow after Jesus. I want to go all in today. No more playing games. No more playing it safe. For others, I don't know what it may mean for you, but, but, but here's my hope is if you have never trusted in Christ, do that today. Follow after him. For others who have trusted in Jesus, let's be refilled with the Holy Spirit today. And one of the ways that we can do this is through communion. By tearing off a piece of bread and dipping it in the juice, we have two stations in the front, two in the back, and I want you to remember what Christ has done for you. Remember, when you come, the reason we're able to come around this table and be a part of the family of God is because, again, Jesus left his safety. He's left his comfort. He came and experienced a death, burial, and resurrection so that you now, when you step out, you too can experience a death, burial, and a resurrection. All that being said, I want to invite the band to come. I want to pray for us. Go ahead and stand with me, if you will. And let's just take a moment before I pray, and I want to encourage you just to, if you have the Holy Spirit, if you are a Christ follower, you can talk to God right now. You can go to him where you are right now. And I just want you to ask him, like, to ask this question of what do you have for me in light of this text? Before you jet out of here and go eat and wrestle with kids and all that, just ask him that. Don't think about the person next to you or behind you. Holy Spirit, what do you have for me in light of a message like this? And I just encourage you to, to ask him, is there anywhere where you're calling me to live as a bold witness? To step out, even though I, I can't see what it's going to look like, even though I don't know how exactly everything's going to turn out. Is there anywhere you're calling me? to open up my mouth and to testify about who you are. Is there anywhere you're calling me to move out of my comfort zone so I can experience you in a deeper way? Father, I do thank you so much for everyone who is here today. I thank you so much that, that we can come and celebrate today the fact that you left heaven and you came and laid down everything for us. Help that never to become old news for our church. Help us to breathe you in every day so that we cannot help but breathe you out. I pray for the person who is here right now who is struggling with anxiety and fear like most of us are. That again today, God, that we would just surrender that to you. And we would trust that courage and boldness is not the absence of fear. But it's just the conviction that you are who you say you are. And that we can be obedient to you rather than just being enslaved to our feelings. We can, Father, live as slaves to you. And by doing that, that we can experience the freedom that we are longing for. Holy Spirit, would you please right now, if there's anybody in the room who does not have a personal relationship with you, who is empty, um, who has been longing for salvation and all sorts of things other than you, would you please open their eyes to see how beautiful and how gracious and merciful you are, that you would keep them from making excuses on why today is not the day of salvation.
and that they would trust fully in you. And it's in Christ that we do pray and ask these things. Amen.